It's Monday, October 3rd. I'm Pam Jones. Some of the most important laws that went into effect Saturday aim to improve the health of Marylanders. Transportation for some kids to get to school will be improved this fall. Is COVID over? Dr. Lena Wen weighs in on President Biden's declaration of victory over the pandemic. Ballots are on their way to Marylanders who prefer to vote by mail. And new public TV documentaries present surprising portraits of two Maryland heroes. It's the Daily Dose from WIPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Despite uncertainty about when they'll be counted, ballots for the November election are on their way to voters. According to the Baltimore Banner, as many as one million Maryland voters may be voting by mail. Mailing has started in most Maryland counties. The final push will include ballots sent to Baltimore City tomorrow and Baltimore County Wednesday. And you can ask for a ballot to be mailed until November 1st or request an emailed ballot until November 4th, the Friday before Election Day. Over the weekend, several laws went into effect in Maryland that will impact the health and safety of residents. WIPR's health reporter Scott Massioni gives us the rundown. Legislation requiring proper car seats, investigations into mental health, and mandates to lessen wait times for medical programs all went into effect on Saturday. One measure requires any person transporting a child under two years old to secure the baby in a rear-facing safety seat that complies with federal regulations. Offenders will get a written warning for the first offense and a $50 fine for subsequent violations. Another law aims to make it easier to enroll in Medicaid waiver programs like home services for people with brain injuries and care for children with autism. The law asks the Department of Health to assess ways to cut wait times in half starting in 2024. That may include hiring more staff or expanding the capacity of programs. One last law establishes a statewide commission to identify and address contributing factors to suicide. On average, 530 people in Maryland take their lives each year. Scott Massioni, WIPR News. Most Baltimore City public school students who live within a mile of their school are ineligible for transportation services. A new law will make mobility in Baltimore safer for all people, but especially students traveling to school. WIPR's education reporter, Shekana Collier, has that story. House Bill 73 went into effect on October 1st. The law creates a funding stream for Baltimore's complete streets and safe routes to school programs by directing all revenue from traffic enforcement cameras to those initiatives. Delegate Robin Lewis, who sponsored the bill, said it's designed to put pedestrians first in the hierarchy of mobility. Our culture, uh, our policies, our funding structures are all designed to make cars more important than people in public spaces. Streets and roads are designed to move drivers quickly through space at the expense of the safety of people walking and moving around in other ways. And this Mm. bill aims to hit the reset button and put people first. According to the city's 2021 Complete Streets Manual, Baltimore City experiences over 30 traffic-related fatalities and over 5,000 injuries each year. The Department of Transportation wants to reduce that number to zero by 2030. Meg Young, the new mobility manager for the Department of Transportation, said the city passed its first complete streets ordinance in 2018. Young said the goal is to build streets for all people. Whether it's a student going to school somebody who's in a wheelchair, or somebody who does drive. And so the goal of that ordinance was to develop standards and street typologies so that no matter how you travel, there should be a network of streets that connect. 
Delegate Lewis said prior to the new law, there was never money in the city's budget dedicated to complete streets and safe routes to school programs. House Bill 73 will help fund and implement pedestrian and bike infrastructure. One local organization that advocates for people of all abilities to be able to walk, bike, or ride transportation safely throughout Baltimore is Bike More. Jed Weeks is the interim executive director. He suggests increasing all ages and ability facilities across the city, which are roads that allow everyone to feel comfortable using alone. This can look like bike lanes separated from traffic, either by parked cars or concrete barriers. Say there was a speeding car and it got out of control, it would run into another parked car that was sort of protecting you in that bike facility so you wouldn't get hit like you would in a normal bike lane that's next to that speeding or, you know, out of control car. A safety measure he suggests for students traveling to school are what he calls biking school buses. So basically you and your friends all get together and ride to school together on the same path, right? So there's a big crowd of kids riding to school together or walking to school together. And that that's just like a big pack of people that's very visible. Uh, and, and it makes it a lot safer. Department of Transportation's lead bike planner, Matthew Hendrickson, said that while the city has made progress with creating safe and complete streets, many neighborhoods still face challenges because of high speed and traffic. A lot of those are impacting you know, our youth and our kids being able to access schools. So kind of our vision is to kind of plan out that network, um, pursue funds to be able to make sure that it is safe. Um, and kind of prioritizing the school system within that network so that kids can get from their house to and from school safely. Delegate Lewis said complete streets and safe routes to school are a matter of racial justice in Baltimore. On average, 29% of Baltimore households do not have access to a personal vehicle. It's as high as 66% in historically disadvantaged and underserved neighborhoods. Jakana Collier, WIPR News. Dr. Lena Wen joined WIPR's Tom Hall today on Midday. Dr. Wen is Baltimore's former health commissioner and a visiting professor at George Washington University. She was the perfect person to ask the question, is the pandemic over? That's an issue because of criticism faced by President Joe Biden when he declared the pandemic's end recently. So here's what the president said uh, the other day on 60 Minutes, a week or so ago, about the uh, the coronavirus pandemic. The pandemic in, is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's but the pandemic is over. So, what do you think, Doctor Wen? Is it? Well, first of all, Tom, I'm glad that you played the entire clip from President Biden because I think that his comments have been taken out of context. He did not say that COVID is over, but rather that the pandemic is over, which I think um, is actually correct. Because if we look at several definitions of what classifies as a pandemic, one definition is a pandemic is is um, is when is when it upends your daily life, when how we go to school and work and interact with one another is totally changed. That was certainly true starting in March of 2020. 
probably for many people, it persisted through 2021 until many people were able to be vaccinated and their younger kids were able to be vaccinated as well. But if you look at how people are living their lives now and go to restaurants or sports games or even the CDC has loosened their recommendations for masking in nursing homes and in hospitals last week, I mean, we can see that the social end of the pandemic has already come and along with it, the policy end of the pandemic as well. Now, I think another important point here is that most scientists, if not all scientists, have acknowledged that COVID is going to be here with us, meaning that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes this coronavirus, is endemic. It is going to be with us for the foreseeable future, probably for generations to come. And if that's the case, by definition, it no longer is a pandemic. However, that is not to take away from the more than a million lives that have already been lost to COVID. It is not to minimize the impact of COVID that's still impacting individuals now. It's just saying that we have to transition to a different phase in dealing with COVID-19. And I believe that that's what President Biden was trying to say. And I'll add one more thing here, Tom, if I may, which is that there are so many other public health crises that are also affecting us now. Of course, we've been talking about monkeypox, which has not gone away. The reemergence of polio, which was we thought was eliminated in the U.S., now is back. And we have STDs at record rates. Syphilis is increasing at a faster rate than, than ever um, since the, or the faster than it's been since the Truman administration. We have overdose rates that are spiking, cancer screenings that have fallen off a cliff. We need to also address these other issues as well. And so saying that the pandemic is over allows us to keep on addressing COVID in the same way as we would address these other very important health issues as well. Former Baltimore Health Commissioner Lena Wen speaking to WIPR's Tom Hall. Over the course of his career, filmmaker Stanley Nelson has documented life in America. He focuses on the black experience from Emmett Till to the Black Panthers, from Miles Davis to Sweet Honey in the Rock. He's continuing that work with a pair of programs about two towering figures born on Maryland's eastern shore. Tomorrow, Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom, premieres on Maryland Public Television. Next week brings the first showing of Becoming Frederick Douglass. Recently, Nelson sat down with WIPR's Sheila Cast. Well, first I should say what an honor it was to tell tell those stories. I mean, you know, I knew a little bit about Frederick Douglass and a little bit about Harriet Tubman, uh, but making the films was a real chance to jump in and and dive deep in, into their lives and to their legacies. So I was really excited and honored to make these films. Well, let's talk about the Tubman film, which is subtitled Visions of Freedom. I mean, Visions is not just a poetic flourish. Talk about her visions. Yeah, one of the things that 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 I learned, and I think you know most people will learn when they see the film, is uh, yeah, Harriet Tubman um, was in, in a weird accident was was hit on the head um, with a weight as she, when she was a little girl, and um, uh, she saw visions for the rest of her life. She really believed in the visions that she saw, and and the visions kind of told her that that her mission was to to free people. Um, so we use that kind of metaphor, and, and we we. Uh, name the film uh, Visions of Freedom. 
The actress Alfre Woodard narrates the film. Early on, we hear her voice, some thoughts that Tubman wrote later. God's time is always near. He set the North Star in the heavens. He gave me the strength in my limbs. He meant I should be free. Several historians in the film talk about Tubman's sense that God was always guiding her. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's um, something that, that Harry Tubman believed. Um, as people say in the film, you know, it was a time where the majority of people were much more uh, religious uh, or, or, or their lives were based in religion than, than people are today. And so it wasn't um, uh, that abnormal that, that Harry Tubman felt that she was guided by God. I think the visions that she had were abnormal, but, but I think that uh, yeah, Harry Tubman for all her life felt that, that she was doing God's work. One thing that attracted Stanley Nelson to the Harriet Tubman story was to correct the record about who ran the Underground Railroad. So many times um, historians told us, you know, as one person says in the film, you know, we think about, uh, we talk about the Underground Railroad and we think about Quakers, white Quakers, but um, the Underground Railroad um, was largely African-Americans, especially in the South. Filmmaker Stanley Nelson's second film premiering this month is called Becoming Frederick Douglass. Stanley, those of us today looking back at the extraordinary advocate and revolutionary Douglass was need a reminder of what it meant to become Frederick Douglass. Early in the film, you let us hear from Christopher Bonner, associate professor of history at the University of Maryland. Douglass was becoming various things across his life. He was becoming free and figuring out how to make himself a person who was not enslaved. He was becoming literate and becoming a person who had cultivated all sorts of knowledge that he could use in his politics. And what's most interesting is that he was becoming a person who could change what the nation was and help to eliminate the institution of slavery. When and how did this idea of becoming present itself to you as the theme for this film? One of the things that 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 we had to do when we started um, the film that became becoming Frederick Douglass is that we had to figure out how how we could talk in a substantive way about Frederick Douglass's life, given we only had an hour. So we said, let's tell the the story of the first half of his life, or you know, the first part of his life, where he he goes from. Uh, being an enslaved young boy, uh, illiterate, to the end he's thought of as being probably the most photographed uh, American in in the uh, 19th century. You walk us through some of the self-creation, recreation young Frederick Bailey did on the Eastern Shore and in Baltimore, how he grabbed chances to learn to read. But he was trained as a ship's caulker, I mean, a skill, but manual labor. How did he get to that third challenge Professor Bonner laid out, the idea that he could change the nation? I think it was very gradual. When he, he married, he married a, a free African-American woman, and um, you know she encouraged him to escape, escape from Baltimore, escape from Maryland, into the North where he could claim his freedom. And he start, he did that. And because he had that experience of being enslaved, he started speaking in, in, in abolitionist meetings. And very quickly, um, other abolitionists realized that he was an incredible speaker. 
and that he could convey the horrors of enslavement uh, in a way that that few people could and and so that gradually he just he became a, an outstanding speaker a sought after speaker and and traveled um all over the country speaking or at least in the north of the country speaking against slavery and for abolition Stanley Nelson speaking with on the record Sheila Cast about his new films the Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Many thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, Shekinah Collier, John Lee, Scott Massioni, Joel McCord, Kristen Mossbrucker, and Bethany Raja. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. If you have a scoop or suggestion for this podcast, my social media hangout is Twitter at That's Pam Jones. Remember to be courageous and stay curious. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.